Welcome to the Ethics in Focus series of Examining Ethics with Andy Collison, hosted by the Janet Prendel Institute for Ethics. I'm Sandra, one of the producers on the podcast. Thank you for joining us and welcome to our series, Ethics in Focus. For new listeners, the Ethics in Focus series is a special presentation of full-length interviews with some of our expert guests. Ethics in Focus features conversations about ethics without explanations that are designed to appeal to people already familiar with the field of ethics. We'll still have our regularly scheduled episodes at the end of every month, but every once in a while, we'll drop one of these bonus Ethics in Focus interviews. Our other producer, Christian, has more about today's show. Today's edition of Ethics in Focus features our host Andy Collison's conversation with David Benatar and David Wasserman, the authors of Debating Procreation, Is It Wrong to Reproduce? Out now from Oxford University Press. If you spent time studying the literature about the ethics of procreation, you've no doubt heard of our guests. David Benatar is a professor of philosophy and head of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Cape Town in Cape Town, South Africa. David Wasserman is a faculty member at the Department of Bioethics in the United States National Institutes of Health. They join me to talk about their book, which deals with questions about reproduction that are often ignored in ethics and philosophy, but center on one question in particular. Is it wrong to reproduce? Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Professor Benatar, thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Nice to be with you. And Mr. Wasserman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So the book is Debating Procreation, Is It Wrong to Reproduce? And I thought it might be good to start out by getting some of the basic terminology on the table and let our listeners understand the two positions being defended here before we get down to looking at arguments for and against these positions. So I'm going to start with Professor Benatar. Uh, Could you tell us what natalism and antinatalism are, and tell us what your position on uh, these views is. Antinatalism is probably the easier term to define. It's a position that is opposed to procreation. Uh, often the contrast to that is pronatalism, but I suppose one could also use the term natalism as a contrast. And I am an antinatalist myself. I believe it's wrong for people to have children. Mr. Wasserman, you defend that procreation is sometimes permissible, but it's noted that your view is somewhat unorthodox. Can, can you give us a rough idea as to where you might draw the line and why your view might be considered quote-unquote unorthodox? Yeah, I should just say by way of background that the unorthodox was a contrast with a heretical view that David Benatar was espousing. So I I just wanted to make clear that I was not defending conventional wisdom, which I think David would concede. And I hope I will make clear. So my own view is that some procreation is permissible. And I set a bar which is at the same time fairly low and fairly high. It's fairly low because I think it's morally permissible with some qualifications that I could get into for prospective parents to have any child they reasonably expect to have a life worth living, a life that future individual would regard as worth the 
serious ills and adversities that any human being can expect. Um, now, there are a lot of reasonables in my formulation of this, but I don't think there's a precise standard. Mm-hmm. I think that pe- prospective parents make a decision to have a child in you know, a very specific context, and it's within that context that they need to make that judgment. Um, I don't think, however, that they need to choose if it's even possible to choose the best possible child they have or the child who will be the better off. They don't need to aim for a threshold above a more than decent life. And I think that such selectivity may even be questionable, that parents ought to be in the business of doing best for whatever child they have as long as they're reasonably confident that um, that child will have a life worth living, that that child him or herself regards as worth living. Now, of course, Professor Benatar thinks that no parent or virtually no parent can have that reasonable confidence. The, the way in which my view is demanding is I think that parents need to be motivated a certain way or act for certain reasons. I think that in large part because um, any person's life is full of terrible risks and serious harms, prospective parents ought not be exposing a person to those risks unless part of their reason for doing so, it can only be part of their reason, is because they want that individual to enjoy the goods of life, that they goods that they believe will outweigh those risks and ills. Okay. And, and I don't think that either part of that view is widely shared. Let's uh, turn to Professor Benatar's uh, core arguments and, and view. So the book begins with Benatar's defense of the antinatalist position. And Professor Benatar, you have core three arguments here, and I'd like to just go through each in turn. So let's let's just start with the first argument. You have something that you call the asymmetry argument for the antinatalist position. Could you uh, summarize what that argument is for us? Yes, I can. I should probably say at the outset that that's probably the most technical of the arguments. Uh, but the rough idea is that there is an asymmetry between good things in life and bad things in life. So I'll briefly sketch out the symmetrical part, and then I'll mention, mention the asymmetrical part. So I think that the presence of a, a harm is a bad thing, and the presence of a benefit is a good thing. But I think when we come to the absences of harms and benefits, we find an asymmetry. So I think the absence of a harm is good, even if that good is not enjoyed by anyone. Mm-hmm. Whereas the absence of a benefit is not bad unless there is somebody for whom the absence is a deprivation. So what that means is that if we're thinking about cases of bringing somebody into existence, we need to consider the possibility that that person's going to suffer harms and uh, the avoidance of those harms by avoiding creating the, the child is a good thing. We also need to recognize when we don't create a child that there will be no child that will enjoy the benefits that that child would have if it were created. But the absence of those benefits, I think, is not bad because there's nobody who is deprived. So that's an asymmetry, and uh, obviously some people are going to just want to dispute the asymmetry. But in the book and in an earlier book I wrote, I gave a whole series of arguments for why I think that we ought to accept this asymmetry. If you think the absence of harm is a good, even if no one can experience that absence or benefit from that absence, but you don't think the absence of a good is a bad. In a decision to not bring a child into existence, 
with respect to the harms avoided, you've done a good thing. But with respect to the goods you've avoided, you haven't done a bad thing. Is that the idea? Exactly. And so, exactly. And so the avoidance of harm somehow gets a kind of, in the overall calculus in deciding whether or not to procreate, the, the absence of harm weighs in more heavily. That's correct. Now, let's talk about, uh, as you say, that's one of the more technical arguments. So I don't think we'll need to go into the technical details. That's one of those things where we can uh, ask our listeners to check out the book. The quality of life argument is another one of your three core arguments for the antinatalist position. Could you uh, summarize that argument for our listeners? Yes. Uh, in a way, there are two arguments bundled into one there. So uh, one argument is to say that the quality of human life, even the best human lives, is much worse than most people think. And uh, here I cite a range of psychological phenomena, which have been amply demonstrated by psychological studies, uh, which show why people are actually not the best judges of the quality of human life. There are all kinds of bad things that happen on a day-to-day -day level, but also happen over the course of a lifetime that people tend to underestimate and not factor in to the extent that they should. Uh, if you think about uh, over the full course of a life, the, the chance of something really terrible happening to uh, any one of us is is really immense. Mm -hmm. And so I think that uh, that's one kind of quality of life argument. Related, and I've already implied it a little bit, is, uh, is a risk argument. So even if you thought that it was possible that some individuals would escape uh, terrible things in their life, the chance of something terrible befalling any one individual is so high that I think there's something indecent about bringing a child into existence and exposing it to those risks when it cannot consent to them and can't agree to them. Let's go through the, the misanthropic argument now. So the other arguments are what I call philanthropic arguments because they're really concerned with the well-being of the being that you would bring into existence, and they're concerned about avoiding harm to those beings. Uh, the other argument is a misanthropic one in that it appeals to the dark side of human nature, to the terrible things that humans do to one another, uh, to uh, animals, and uh, also to the environment, thereby affecting other humans and animals. And I cite, uh, again, a whole host of empirical and other literature that shows just how destructive humanity is. Now, I think there's a temptation for many people to say, well, look, my child isn't going to be that destructive. My child isn't going to do a lot of damage. And so one of the things I try to do is to show how even the people with the best of intentions actually inflict quite a lot of damage, and they do quite a lot of harm. And so they're quite good misanthropic uh, arguments for avoiding creating more people. I should say that I don't think that the misanthropic argument produces quite as categorical an antinatalist conclusion as the philanthropic arguments do. But I certainly think that it uh, is added evidence for an argument for uh, an antinatalist position. One final thing I should say about the misanthropic argument is that I do spend some time showing why I think it's not inconsistent with or incompatible with the philanthropic arguments. I think you can be both concerned about human beings and wanting to avoid suffering to them while also recognizing the damaging power of humanity. The core difference between, say, the quality of life argument and the misanthropic argument, if I understand, is the, the quality of life argument has to do with thinking about the, the risks that you're going to put your child through in terms of suffering and the potential benefits might not outweigh that and that the risks are so great uh, that without consent it'd be 
you do something bad. But the misanthropic argument, if I understand correctly, is more about risking bringing someone into the world who's going to do the bad things. Is that is that the exactly. idea? Uh, Mr. Wasserman, I, I know you have something to say about each of these arguments, the asymmetry argument, the quality of life argument, and the misanthropic argument. Could you briefly explain some of your thoughts on these arguments in turn? Okay, sure. Well, I'll start with the asymmetry argument because I have the least to say about that. Had um, Professor Benatar gone into more detail on the argument, I would have had some objections to raise, but I think those objections have been raised by other people, other philosophers more attracted to the technical character of the argument or who got there first with more ammunition than I could bring to bear. So I will just say that I am, I don't find that asymmetry itself compelling in part for the common sense reason that I don't think that it, I, I still find the claim that it, that um, the critical part, the asymmetrical part of the asymmetry um, rather ad hoc um, but again, I, that's, that's just a, um, that's just an objection, not an argument. Mm -hmm. Um, but what interested me more was the limited role it played in his overall argument. I, I, I find, um, as I believe he says at one point, and, and he can correct me, um, that the asymmetry argument establishes if it's correct that bringing someone into existence is a harm, but it doesn't establish the magnitude of the harm. And so the, to me, the real moral action is in the quality of life and now the misanthropic arguments. And, and I focus on the quality of life argument in part because I find that the most emotionally and morally compelling. I think it's a powerful argument against complacency. I don't think it's a powerful argument against procreation. And in the book, I, I, I argue not that, um, you know, everything's coming up roses or is likely to in, in any uh, future generation, but that there are massive, massive differences in the quality of life among people that I believe Professor Benatar shows insufficient appreciation of, and that those differences can only be appreciated with with the kinds of standards we have within human lives. I think that he often adopts standards for evaluating life that are just outside a human vantage point. I think that if a conception of human flourishing has to take into account at least some human limitations, including the fact that we're mortal beings. Um, I, I don't find the process for reasons that... Uh, Several philosophers argued I don't find the prospect of immortality appealing. I don't even find it comprehensible as a mortal human being. Um, I think that there are many people I know of who I believe, obviously, we, we, we all face severe epistemic limitations, although not as severe as I, as I uh, think Professor Benatar believes, uh, in assessing or predicting other people's lives, but I think that lives can go enormously well, and I think that um, the arguments that Benatar gives that they don't, um, arguments against made in terms of specific theories of well-being, either place too much of a premium on 
the immediate experience of suffering, which obviously can be real and terrible and not on suffering as part of a kind of package. I mean, obviously in a case like giving birth to a child, which for better or worse, I've never experienced, but also in terms of a broader, the broader retrospect of someone on his or her deathbed looking back at a life full of ups and downs. And I think that unwarranted premium in terms of experiential good and um, the impossibly high standards in terms of objective good simply place too high a bar on human well-being. I mean, there's a, another critic of um, Professor Brantar who puts it simply that there are times when um, being not as good as possible is simply not good and rather than bad. And uh, that is a mundane conclusion, I think, goes a long way toward challenging the implications of the examples and, and specific arguments that Benatar makes in the quality of life argument. And I mean, I, I certainly could go into more detail. I don't think I should at this point. But the philanthropic argument. Um, let me let me um, let me pause you there, just so that I can kind of try and distill something for our listeners on your response to the sure. quality of life argument. So I gather the the main thrust of your objection is going to be examining Professor Benatar's value calculus that places too much of a premium on certain kinds of experiences. Uh, and if you don't place that premium, then you don't think some of the weighing would favor uh, not procreating. Is that roughly the idea? We can. That's part of it. I, I mean, what I should have said, but I didn't get it early enough, is that he goes systematically through the sort of three standard approaches to well-being, uh, hedonic or experiential. And that's my criticism of his hedonic argument. I think the second type of theory is a desire satisfaction theory, and I think that largely the way Benatar treats desire satisfaction, it collapses either into hedonic or objective list, which is the third kind. And so I focus on um, hedonic theories, which I think in, in which I think his arguments s suffer from that unwarranted premium and objective list theories for which I think they set an impossibly and unreasonably high standard. So then the thrust of the disagreement between you and Professor Benatar would be over uh, which theory of well-being to select and looking carefully at what those theories of well-being are going to say about. Uh, I, I, don't, I think we both don't want to commit ourselves to a particular theory of well-being. I think he makes arguments um, that in for each of the three, and I counter with arguments for each okay. of the three. Fair enough. So uh, that it's being fought out on a terrain that's been mapped out by other philosophers. Okay. So then uh, your thoughts on the misanthropic argument? There, I think that human beings are capable of doing enormous evil. I think that they continue to do enormous evil. My assessment of the evil differs from uh, Professor Benatar's because I don't give as much moral weight to the harms to non-human animals as he does, although partly as a result of his arguments more than I did before I started thinking about these issues in a concerted way. Um, but I also believe that to not have children because one is 
one thinks there's a significant likelihood one's children will do a great deal of evil is to engage in a phrase that, that I'm using a phrase I didn't use in the book, a kind of preventative extinction. I think that in procreation, one is at least permitted to give one's offspring the benefit of the doubt if one is prepared to be a sufficiently vigilant parent. Now, of course, you know, there's no guarantee. There are very conscientious middle-class Islamic parents in England and other places whose uh, well-raised children ran off to join ISIS. So I don't think there are guarantees. I think there can be reasonable assurance, which can be challenged and, you know, or shattered in specific cases. After spelling out your reasons for rejecting some of these antinatalist arguments and rejecting antinatalism generally. And I, there, I'll say for our listeners, there's much more you have to say about antinatalism in the book. You turn your attention toward defending a, sometimes it is permissible to procreate. And as you said at the beginning of this interview, you have a kind of bar that's low in one sense, but high in another. But I wanted to talk to you about a distinction early in this defense that you make. Uh, and I think it has some bearing on how you set the bar low sometimes and high in, other, in another sense. You have this distinction between what you call child-centered reasons to procreate and I suppose what, um, what you might call non-child-centered reasons. So first, can you tell us what this distinction is and give us some examples of reasons that parent might, parents might have that are child-centered and then some examples of reasons that are non-child-centered? Okay, well, it's a distinction, but it's a distinction I think is actually very blurred in practice. One, because I think that no parents act for truly child-centered reasons, which are reasons that concern the good of the future child, whoever it will be. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I can give uh, some examples of that come from a, a, an actual qualitative study of prospective fathers who gave among their uh, most frequent reasons for wanting to have a child, to share what I have and know with a child, to have a special bond that develops between a parent and child, to give love and affection to a child, and to give a child a good home. Now, these are reasons, I think, which at least in part concern a future child. Obviously, it's not a particular child at that point. The, the prospective father hasn't even conceived. There are you know, an infinite number of possible children that um, that intention or, or, or uh, you know, hope could be bestowed on. But I think, nevertheless, those are child, those are what I have in mind when I talk about child-centered reason. Other reasons are, are, are not anti-child-centered, certainly. I mean, although some, could, some conceivably could be, they concern, you know, keeping up with fertile peers, avoiding the stigma of infertility, giving one's parents, grandchildren, giving one's younger child, one's existing child a younger sibling. And I think a lot of these reasons have, too, have child, future child, centered aspects. I mean, if you want a sibling for your current uh, child, you're not looking for an entertainer or a distraction or a babysitter. Um, you're looking for a mutually enriching relationship. So you're looking not only for the good of the existing child, but for the good of the not 
the um, future child who will have what you hope will be a loving older sibling. Obviously, that hope isn't always borne out, at least initially. But um, so I, I, um, that's the basic distinction in those examples. I think it's a fairly, it's not an exotic or mysterious distinction. And it seems to have some bearing on what you have to say about the permissibility of having a child. So I guess the first question leading up to fleshing out what the view is, do you think it's permissible to have a child without having some child-centered reason or other? Well, I don't think it is, but I don't, as, as, I, as I concede, I don't have a knock, uh, anything like a knockdown argument for that. I think that there, there's a, a tremendous debate about whether there are types of action that need to be done with certain intentions um, to be permissible. And, uh, for example, I mean, I use the example of promises in, in the book, I believe. Um, clearly, I mean, or most people would agree it is wrong to make a promise with the intention of breaking it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there may be some disagreement about whether it is permissible to make a promise with the expectation of keeping it, but not the intention of keeping it. Mm-hmm. Uh, although they, those may be hard to tell apart in, in an actual case of promise making. But I, I would think that it is, you know, a good faith promise is made with the intention of keeping it, and that one shouldn't promise if one lacks that intention as well as that expectation. I mean, you can hardly have a credible intention if you think there are vanishingly small odds of keeping the promise. And similarly for the child, I think you have to intend it's good, and that intention requires the expectation that it could have a good life. If you think those odds are vanishingly small, it's, um, you know, you can't really have that intention. And and in, in the book, I make various partial analogies, which I then qualify and concede that I, you know, none of them is fully satisfactory, but say that in the case of procreation, the main reason I think for a requirement, a moral requirement that one actually seeks the good of the future child, whoever it may be, is that life is so damn difficult and risky, even in the best of circumstances. So I sort of, I mean, it's more than a nod to the antinatalist arguments. I mean, I think that they create a motivation or impose a motivational burden on prospective parents that a lot of pronatalists don't recognize. There does seem to be a strong kind of preference for having these child-centered reasons then, um, and based largely on antinatalist concerns. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, I mean, it's, it would be quite a thought experiment to imagine a, a world so different than ours that none of the um, harms and evils that Professor Benatar so vividly describes were were present. I mean, that certainly uh, the case for a moral requirement would be a lot weaker in such a very distant world. Interesting. So the, the next part of your position, um, or I guess a, sort of this two core views that get defended in this latter part of the book. One has to do with what kinds of reasons ought to factor into procreation decisions. After that, you you take up the question as to whether we have reasons to prefer bringing, I'll just say, happier or better off children into the world if given a choice. And you consider whether it would be wrong to opt to bring a child that you have reason to think would be less well off. And you ultimately seem to conclude that it's not wrong 
to opt to bring a child into the world that you know would be less ha happy or less well off than some other possible child. Could you walk us through your reasoning here? Yeah, well, it's convergent reasoning. I mean, I can start by saying that um, the basic idea is that whichever child you have, and we're assuming now that these child, this child is going to have a decent life, a life that it will undilutedly regard as worth living, which again is something that um, Professor Benatar would question, but I mean, I, I need to get the argument off the ground because if I share his belief, if I embrace his quality of life argument, all of this would become irrelevant. So mm -hmm. um, assuming you have a choice among children, all of whom you reasonably expect to have such a life, it's, it's just a matter of complete indifference to whichever child you choose that there's some other child that uh, you could have had that would have had a better or worse life. It, it, it's not even like a case where you, um, you know, where one child, where uh, you give a gift to one of two existing children, mm -hmm. and one child says, "Why did you give it to me? You should have given it to my less happy sibling, or you know, my my happier sibling was on a roll. You know, right. I should have supported him." It, in this case, the, you know, whichever child is picked is the child. The other one is just one of a, or the other one. There is no other one. There's just a multiplicity of possible children not chosen, and uh, you know, or uh, a finite number of embryos not implanted. So, mm -hmm. um, it, it, that that from that child's point of view, it's totally. It, it makes no difference whatsoever that that some other child could have had. A better life. So why should the parents be concerned? Well, if they're, you know, consequentialist parents, they should be interested in bringing more child-affecting good into the world. They can say, we're going to pick A over B because A's life will be better than A, then B's life will be for B. But I don't find that that a an appropriate parental or uh, motivation for prospective parents. Or they could say, look, we want to sort of realize human flourishing as much as possible. So we're going to pick the child who's going to flourish as much mm -hmm. as possible. Um, and I, again, I don't think that's, that should be part of a parental project. Um, or they could say, you know, with the, the uh, you know, we want to add as much good as possible to the world or as much happiness no, to aggregate well-being, so we'll select the happiest child. Mm -hmm. And none of these seem like good reasons. So, um, and, and I wanted to make, and so there are two um, points that I just want to make that are sort of counterpunching, you know, challenging arguments that are made against that. One is the sort of idea that it's, it's perverse to seek a child who um, will be worse off. And I completely agree. I, I mean, someone who said, I want a child who will, for whatever reasons, be less happy, one who will be more happy, is, and this comes from, I, I, I borrow this from Guy Kahana, um, is wishing that child ill, in a sense, even if, it's, even if the parents are committed to doing as much good as possible for the child. I mean, it, it, but the idea of sort of randomly choosing or choosing on the basis of some affinities that happen to be associated with well-being is not choosing because the child will be worse off. And the second point, which is made by a, a claim, which is made by a number of philosophers, is that because parents can't 
now identify a particular future child. Prospective parents can't. They need to um, treat their future child as a kind of a group or use their child de dicto to refer to whoever their future child is. And so by picking the uh, you know, the embryo or the gamete pair that is predicted to be the happiest, they're making that, um, they're making their future child better off. But I just think that's either confused or playing on a confusion to which, you know, philosophers and lay people may succumb. It's going to be a different child. And that child will not be made better off or worse off by the choice, whatever it is. Um, I mean, I have a much longer argument in other places um, for that. So I, and finally, I, 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 I do a lot of borrowing and hear from other philosophers whose views I don't agree with otherwise, but um, I, 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 I borrow an argument from Jeff McMahon that if one is committed to the view that one has a moral reason to pick a, a happier than a less happy child or a child who will be better off than one who will be not as well off, um, one is committed to having more children. Uh, or has a moral reason to have more children, which challenges what I, I believe is called the procreative duty or reason asymmetry by Professor Benatar. And that's, a, that's an asymmetry I, that I think is a, a tenant of common sense morality about procreation. So I would, and I think that result is more counterintuitive than saying it's okay to select either child. It seems to be that the key rationale here is the sorts of reasons that parents ought to bring to bear in deciding to procreate shouldn't be things like maximizing happiness in the world or something like that. Uh, they ought to be more geared toward, I guess, child-centered reasons. And if you think about it that way, um, the child who's going to be less well off doesn't from the perspective of what's good for them, they don't care if you could have brought a happier child into the world or not. That's sort of irrelevant from the decision about whether or not to bring this particular child into the world, right? Right. I, I, I should just make one qualifying note. I, I don't think that prospective parents should completely ignore the impact on third parties. I mean, if they're going to have a child who will just make it impossible for them to raise their other children reasonably, they shouldn't do it, you know, whatever that child's own prospects. So I, I don't want to make it look like the only relevant considerations are, you know, concern whatever particular child they would choose. Oxford University Press has generously provided us the book that we are discussing on the show today. To learn more about Oxford University Press, visit them on the web at global.oup.com. To get a link for a 30% discount on debating procreation, is it wrong to reproduce, go to our show notes page for this episode by visiting our site, examiningethics.org. When you visit our website, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, you'll be automatically entered to win a free book from Oxford University Press. Thanks again to Oxford University Press for sponsoring today's show. Now let's get back to Andy's interview with David Benatar and David Wasserman.
Professor Benatar, did you want to weigh in on perhaps anything that Mr. Wasserman said regarding any of your three core arguments um, or anything that Professor, or sorry, that Mr. Wasserman has said in summarizing some of his positive position? Well, he said so much that uh, it's hard for me to engage, I think, with all of the points. So let me just make a few general ones. Okay. First of all, I don't deny for a moment that uh, bringing a child into existence and parenting that child can be good for the parents, that it can be good for any uh, existing siblings that they might be, uh, good for society as a whole in some ways, uh, or for members of society. So I accept all of that. The question is whether it's justifiable to inflict a harm on the child that you would bring into existence uh, in order to derive those other benefits for oneself. So that's, uh, that's the one question that I need to think we need to focus on. And I want to try and um, give this a bit of clarity. Uh, so consider the terrible things that can happen to people. I mean, think about in our kind of society where people don't die very young ages from infectious diseases. I mean, that's terrible. But once you've got that under control, people tend to die from things uh, like cancer, from various kinds of degenerative diseases. If you look at the United States, uh, one in four men and one in five women will die from cancer. Uh, those deaths are pretty horrific deaths. When you create a child, you are exposing it to a very high risk of a death of that kind and, and, this, and the dying process that leads up to it. If it's not cancer that gets you, it's very likely to be something else that's terrible. And then I want you to ask yourself when you're contemplating bringing this child into existence, how much good would they need to be in their life in order to outweigh that unspeakable suffering that the being will suffer in anticipation of its death uh, while it's dying? And when I think you concretize it in this way, imagine another example. Imagine you consider the possibility, let's say, that your child will be raped. And you imagine some horrific rape. And now you're engaged in some kind of activity where you ask yourself, how much good would there need to be in the life to outweigh this terrible evil? I think when you start telling me how much good there would need to be to outweigh the bad, you very rapidly begin to sound indecent and callous. Because it's hard for me to see how pleasures somebody might have in life, the, the professional satisfaction they might have, whatever personal satisfaction they might have, uh, how those things could be a warrant for bringing into existence a child that will suffer an horrific fate of that kind. So what I would say to pr prospective parents who are contemplating bringing a child into existence is very vividly imagine the terrible things that in aggregate are likely to happen to your child and then start doing the sums for me and tell me how much good they would need to be. I think people are going to be a lot more hard-pressed uh, to, to justify procreation when they're thinking about that. Uh, I also, if we look at the misanthropic argument, we want to say that ordinary people raised well by good parents do a lot of damage. Um, those of us who uh, live in the developed world or lead lives of, of people in the developed world do lots of damage to the environment that has a large, a large impact on, on future generations, uh, on um, animals, on people that are existing today. If you think about most people in the world consuming meat and animal products, just think about the, the numbers of animals that are suffering unspeakably in order to feed that habit. There's a lot of evil that's done, often unwittingly, unintentionally, not with malice, uh, by ordinary people that we don't regard as evil. I think these are very real considerations that people need to consider. You're going to have a hard time coming up with a list of goods that would outweigh these things. I, I suppose uh, another relevant consideration might have to do with something like consent or a prediction that the 
person you're bringing into existence would consent to these things. At the very beginning, you said it's it's irresponsible or, or bad to subject people to these kinds of risks when you can't get their consent. So I just wondered what you thought about the following view. Someone might say, well, I can't get the actual consent of the child to be, but I can run a kind of inductive argument. Most of the people I encounter, you know, would say, had I been given the opportunity to consent, knowing what I know now, I would have consented. And so they make this kind of reasonable prediction, whatever child I have, you know, when they get to be 30 or so would have consented to this. Um, do you have any, have you, is that an objection you, you, you grapple with in the book or do you have any thoughts about that kind uh, of reasoning? Yes, I, ha I have. And I've considered that argument and responded to it. I think part of the worry there is one of adaptive preferences. Mm -hmm. So imagine whether you're thinking about lobotomizing somebody without their uh, consent and uh, you've lobotomized a whole lot of people without their consent before, and you find that they don't really mind oh, uh, because it's after the fact, and uh, now they, they're quite happy in their current condition. Right. Uh, we, we wouldn't take that as an authorization. We wouldn't say that after the fact that they're happy with uh, right. this diminished state, that uh, that's a warrant to do it up front without their consent. Or imagine you manage to enslave people, uh, but at the same time give them a daily dose of medicine that makes them content with their enslavement. Uh, I think there's something similar going on with the biological adaptation to life. Right, uh, okay. We've got these powerful life drives, and that's the kind of worry I have. Yeah, or give someone a love potion. Everyone I've given this love yes. potion to loves the fact that they're in love with me, so they would all yes. they would all consent. I, I see. That's, a, that's an interesting counter. All right, well, I, I think we should probably end there. So uh, first, Mr. Wasserman, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And Professor Benatar, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Nice to have a discussion with you and with my friend and colleague, David Wasserman. The book we've been discussing today is Debating Procreation, Is It Wrong to Reproduce? by David Benatar and David Wasserman. Thanks again to Oxford University Press for providing us with copies of the book. To find out more about Oxford University Press, visit them on the web at global.oup.com. Don't forget to visit our show notes page at examiningethics.org to get a 30% discount on debating procreation. Thanks again to Oxford University Press for sponsoring today's show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, visit our show notes for this episode of Ethics in Focus at examiningethics.org. When you visit, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. You'll be entered into our monthly book giveaway. Don't forget to tune in for more in our Ethics in Focus series, as well as our regular podcast, which is released the last Wednesday of every month. For updates about the podcast, interesting links, and more, follow us on Twitter at Examining Ethics. If you like what you've heard, please consider rating us on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.